All right, would you agree with me when I say, yeah, you want what is best for your friends? Yeah, you would agree with me? The answer is no. You're a terrible friend, and I don't want to be friends with you. I might, I don't know, just we can talk about it. Well, would you also agree with me that what you think is best for someone changes over time? Okay, maybe seeing a few nods from some of our more experienced congregation. I think this is true that what we want at 15, what we think is best for others, that changes at 25, 45, 65. Our perspective adds clarity. You know, as kids, we want to watch TV or we want to, you know, have a cell phone. And our friends, we knock our parents that don't let us have one. But their future self might might look back and say, well, you don't quite understand all the developmental things that are happening, this addiction to screens, so maybe it's better to wait. Or maybe, uh, you know, it's in high school, the new Jordans come out, this is maybe my generation, and it's like all your friends are like, go drop your whole paycheck on it right now. Okay, yeah, that, that's fun, that's good for you, but maybe your future self wants to say, ah, oh, imagine if you just put some of that money away. And like, you could have like 10 pairs of those in 10 years if you would just put that money away. And, you know, it's fleeting things of life. You know, in high school, my friends and I, we thought it would be fun uh, because that's what we wanted for one another was fun to drive a golf cart down at full speed, a windy, steep hill. It was fun until it ended up in the ditch. And then what followed that was not fun at all. My future self would probably come back and say, well, for the good and fun of our friends, maybe there there are better paths to fun. Deal is, as we get older, though, the stakes get higher. So maybe it's, we think happiness is best for our friends. And so we want, we encourage them to pursue sexual freedom. Because after all, that's how you find compatibility, right? But then maybe your future self is wanting to say to the earlier self, ah, it just leaves you more alone and guilty. Your present self says, do everything you can to create financial security. Well, your future self that's rich is also feels worth, worth less. You could apply this to our attempts to control life, to avoid suffering, to eating, to escape this life. You know, I think our future selves give us a lot of perspective to our younger selves about what is best, about what matters the most. It doesn't take long to learn that the best we want for those we love maybe isn't actually the best for them, but in the end, it was the best we had to offer in that moment. Think about how that applies to our prayer life. Think this week about how you've prayed for the church, about how you prayed for those you love. Were you praying that they would only escape suffering? Or were you praying something else? You know, I'm not discouraging us for praying for these things. These are good. We should want good things all the way around. But who are we to say whether this kind of suffering is going to help or hurt someone We don't have that kind of perspective. And so there's a tension here that I think I just want to highlight that is the best we have to offer others and to pray for others limited by our experiences, by our stage in life. You know, if wouldn't it be nice if our future self at the end of life, the end of all things, could come back and give us perspective about what would be good to pray for those we love? Well, our passage is telling us this exactly today. We get a picture of what our future self will experience. God reveals that to us. 
And this teaches us something about how we should think about praying for one another and also living this life. So this morning, we're actually starting a whole new sermon series that's going to be an occasional series called Prayers for the Church. You know, if you think about what prayer is, which is very important in the life of the church, it's praying to our loving, generous, giving, all-knowing, all-powerful God what we think is best for those we love. And so the question that comes up with this passage is, what exactly is that best? Is best. In all these sermon series, we're going to get a snapshot of that church. And what we're going to see is that the author's very intimate knowledge of, gospel, of the gospel, his intimate knowledge of God, and his intimate knowledge of the church leads to very theological and rich prayers. So our passage today is going to teach us to pray with the end in view when Christ does return, when our future selves will see with the greatest clarity we've ever seen in life. And he's praying for the church in light of this church, in light of this truth, which I think is his big idea, which will be the big idea for us today. Live today like nothing is better than being found worthy on the final day. Live today like nothing is better than being found worthy on the final day. And as we think about what does it mean to live today, we'll see that God gives everything that we need to live this way. And so our three points will be God-given worthiness, God-glorifying worthiness, and God-empowered worthiness. And with this end in view, if this is the one day that brings ultimate clarity in our life, I want you to think about this. How are you praying for those around you in this church that you love? How are you praying for them? Well, let's get into our first point in our passage today. Listen as I read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Therefore, we boast about you among God's churches about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering. You know, right away we can see what Paul is thankful to the Lord is that the church has endured in faith, love, and endurance through very difficult persecution. And this is the evidence that God will count them worthy on that final day. In very affectionate terms, he begins this passage with this thanksgiving. I think he's starting with thanksgiving for a couple reasons. First, he thanks God because these evidence of grace are answers to Paul's previous prayers for this church that we see in 1 Thessalonians. It's helpful to know that we learn from Acts chapter 17 that Paul and Silas go into Thessalonica, start preaching, and there are converts in this church forms. But then within one month, they're chased out. Uh, the Jewish leaders cite a riot. They bring it up. And so we have Jewish and Gentile people raging against the church. And Paul and Silas have to leave that night. And so Paul is praying for this church like a loving father. 
He actually says in 1 Thessalonians that he is like to, to them a nurturing mother and a, and a father to them. And so he has this very fatherly prayer where he prays, uh, as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and complete what is lacking in your faith, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another. This prayer comes from a place of like an orphan child who had their parents ripped away, ripped away way too soon and the enemy is prowling to devour them. Well, did God answer this prayer or what? For faith, it says that your faith is flourishing. He hears this report. And then their love, well, the love for each one of you has for one another is increasing. That actually persecution is not numbing their clarity, not numbing their faith, numbing their love, actually bringing clarity and an edge to it. This idea of flourishing, you know, think of like planting a shade tree that grows bigger than a dot. It's in abundance of, it's more than should be there. And their faith is abounding in really tough circumstances. And when it says they love one another, it kind of means what it says, that each person was loving each person. Each person was honoring the other above themselves as an overflow of the love, love that Christ had for them. No one is sitting out of loving one another. So in persecution, they are actually flourishing and God causes their faith and love to grow. But I think that's actually the second reason why God is thanking them for this growth is because God causes it. We see that God is the active and initiating agent in the prayer we just read in 1 Thessalonians. We see that, we'll see that in our passage as we go through. We see that in a prayer that he prays just one chapter later in chapter 2, verse 13, that we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you may attain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God that the survival of this infant church is not based on their effort. It's not based on their maturity, their stage of life. It's based on the Lord's power that sustains them and gives them this fruit. And I love this. Paul, Paul wants to brag about him. <laughs> he boasts on this church to all of other God's churches because they're all God's churches, right? But he boasts on this group of people and I think it's helpful to see that, that the following the Lord is a cooperative work with the Lord, that he initiates and empowers us to live for him, yet it's our responses of faith and growth and love and endurance that Paul is so excited that comes from the growth that God has brought. One, uh, one author compared this illustration, compared to this illustration, it's like getting a ticket to a concert or to like a game. Well, you got to have the money to buy the ticket, right? So you've got to have the money to buy the ticket. And then you actually got to take that ticket with you to the, to the concert to get in. You can't really have the ticket without the money that's been purchased. Yet it's the ticket that gets you in. And so as we think about our cooperation with the Lord, he has bought us. He has paid for our redemption. But then that is verified through our obedience to him as we hand that ticket in. On that final day, what's going to cause the Lord to count us worthy is that 
we'll see so clearly that he has declared us worthy, and that's been evidenced by growth and obedience through hard things in life. It's, it's a both and. I think that's what it's talking about here when it says that it is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment. That even right now, everything that's happening, the difficulties for Christians are working out God's judgment, both on sinners, but also the vindication of his believers. Notice what Paul is thanking God for here. Is it, you know, better circumstances? No, it's talking about their faith flourishing, their love increasing, and their endurance enduring. (laughs) This is what it means to flourish in this life. I think often we want our circumstances to change. Believe me, I want our circumstances to change for many of us. But more than that, I want to see your love increase, your faith flourish, and your endurance endure. And it's keeping this view of the final day that brings those things to the surface. Because their circumstances, they're they're not promised. They're going to change. But the Lord has promised to sustain our faith through this. I just want to pause here and just say for a moment that I'm very proud of this church. The way I've seen faith flourish and suffering and love increase. I I mean, I I know a lot of our stories. I know what's happening in our lives. There's a lot of very difficult, complicated, chronic things that are happening in life that suffer. Yet, whenever we talk to other people about this church, whenever we talk to our doctors about this church, everyone is astonished at the level of love that flourishes through so many difficult instances. For many of you, your pain and tiredness probably feels new every day to you. Feels fresh. But I want to let you know that I'm proud of you for fighting in faith because it's going to be worth it on that final day. You know, this this declaration here, that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering. I think we have to take peace that first, as we've seen, this is God-given. God-given through the call, God-given through the sustaining, and even that phrase means to declare that we have been made worthy. But it's on this day of judgment where all of that becomes really clear. So what exactly is he meaning when he talks about the righteous judgment that is happening right now? What does he mean by this? Is it, what's he want to say about those who are following Jesus in faith? What does that mean for those who aren't following that Jesus in faith? Those who are opposed to God and his people? Well, Paul outlines this in the next verses, verses 6 through 10. And we see a picture that on that final day, God brings his justice, which is judgment for sinners, mercy for his believers, and it all ends in glorification. So this next point, let's think about is God glorifying worthiness. So listen as I read from chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from the heavens with his powerful angels when he takes with vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. On that day, when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. Here we get a snapshot, not looking backwards in time or at the current moment, but looking forward in time to this last day. And if our future self could talk to us, this is the day they would describe to us, that would put everything into perspective and illuminate what is most important. And they would pass this on to you in this room if you're a Christian and if you're not a Christian. This final day will bring clarity to this. When Jesus returns, it will be all filled. There will be no doubt that this is the final day, that Jesus is the true king and that God is the just judge. And we see he, he issues his judgment with perfection, giving each group exactly what they asked for in this life. We see this in verse 6 and 7. And it's good to highlight, start with the first group. The first group are those who, are afflict, who afflict God's people, those who don't know God, and those who don't obey the gospel of Jesus. In a nutshell, they never acknowledge that God is real and true. They never believe the gospel to save them or turn from their ways to turn to the true living God. This is a crew that we see in all Old Testament history that says there is no God. And they mock those who follow God. Or they decide who God is going to be based on their own image, the things that they want. Yet isn't that so determined by time as well? I mean, picture what someone today would want God to look like compared to 500 years ago. It's not a very good assessment of what the one true God is. And while it may not feel that every non-Christian is actively persecuting Christians, they are actively making a choice to not follow God, to not believe God, and then live as an enemy of God. So they're doing what they can do best. But because it's found so internally, they continue to do evil when they don't want to. They spread lies that are instead of truth. And even though they might desire to do God, everything they do is inevitably corrupted. So God gives to this group what they're asking for. If they don't want to acknowledge God or want his presence in this life, he removes his presence and his strength. If they act as enemies to God and his people, well, it's right that God would act as an enemy to them on that final day. Those who exercise vengeance towards the Lord in their hearts or towards people, the Lord will repay them with vengeance through the fiery flames of judgment. And for their sin, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. This is the penalty of rebelling against God and his ways. And this word destruction carries along with it the idea of like a pain that you, you can't shake. You can't shake off. You can't get rest from it. There's no medication you can take to alleviate this pain when that day comes. 
We may not even recognize now, if you're not a believer, that God and his strength and his presence in this life is actually restraining evil and suffering in this world so that it's not as bad as it can be. But when God removes his presence and his strength, it will be as bad as it can be. And maybe most starkly, this is eternal. I, I would love that word to mean something else when it comes to judgment, personally. But eternal means eternal. What makes something eternal is that there's no way of, a, of measuring it. There's no end to it. It's forever. And so this is the righteous and just judgment for those who do not repent and believe in the one true God. And so just so I'm crystal clear, because I love everyone in this room, this is not universalism. This does not say that anyone makes it into the kingdom of God. It's only those who believe and repent. This is not something called conditional immortality, which means that only Christians will have eternal souls. We are all created to be eternal beings, including those who are judged. And this is not annihilationism, the idea that sinners receive judgment for a time and then cease to be. So we see this picture that sin against the one and true holy God is it's no joke. To not consider this morning if he's the one true God is no joke. The stakes are high. And I have to admit with, with all of you here, this is hard for me to think about especially when it comes to specific people. I don't want this for them. I love them. I don't want this for them. And so I have to try and take a step back and look at all of God's character and human response just for a moment. I have to remember that God is the true definition of goodness and, and love and truth. And any goodness requires justice. Any love requires justice. A good judge wouldn't let crimes go un, untreated, unpunished. Otherwise, that would just continue. That's why such a, sin is such a big deal. It actively corrupts and takes our corruption deeper and deeper. It's an active rejection of all that is good and true and loving. And even more so, it is to reject the one who is truly good and loving. This people, they're in contrast to another group of people in this passage. And just as I want you to think about what it is to be this person considered if God is the one true God, I also want you to consider what it is to be saved and redeemed by this one true God. And we actually see this picture that maybe goes beyond some of our words like we see this picture that ends with God's glory and all of God's redeemed people are marveling. Like that's a good word, marveling that the Lord has returned, marveling that there will be no evil, marveling that their own pain is in the rearview mirror, marveling that God has come and that it has been worth to wait, worth the wait. And this group, these people are in this group because of this. They believed in God. They believed that he was real and to obey the gospel, as we saw in verse 8. Well, what does it mean to obey the gospel? I think this is the crucial questions we have to, have to answer. 
To understand the gospel is to, to, to know what the good news is and believe with faith and repentance. The good news is that God saved us from the penalty of sin that we just read about so that we could dwell with him. Because the reality is, as sinful, corrupted, tarnished people, we can't be in his good and holy presence. But for God to be good, he had to be just. And for God to be just, his wrath and punishment for sin has to come out somewhere, and it came out on his son. The second person of the Trinity came down to earth, took on flesh, was fully God and fully man. And unlike us, was not tarnished by sin, did not do evil, yet was put to death by evildoers who mocked him, just like we see them doing to the church here, who killed him. They hated him so much. And we think about how terrible that is to to die in isolation from people and the physical pain that was there. But to be honest, what's even worse, what we can't imagine, is, is the suffering that the son received from the father pouring out the wrath of our sins on Jesus. I mean, we can try and imagine, but listen, y'all, we don't, we don't have a clue. It's, it's more than we think. And so Jesus, the God-man, died in our place, taking on that judgment so that at the very end, if we believe and repent, we are not found with the scoffers, those who reject Jesus and reject God's people. And in fact, he raises from the dead, Jesus does in three days, showing that he has victory over sin, over this life of suffering, and that God vindicated him and said, this was my son. Do you see how he suffered for the good of everyone? This is my son whom I love. And now Jesus is in heaven, ruling and reigning. And that was Jesus' first appearance. You needed to know that Jesus is going to appear one more time. Not more, not less. And when Jesus appears, that's the picture we're getting right here in 2 Thessalonians. He's going to come in final judgment and in final mercy based on the life that we live, choosing to follow and repent in Jesus. And those who were united to Jesus through salvation were also united to him through his suffering. Oh, but when the vindication comes, it's so sweet. That's why it's so important how we live today in light of the final day. There's nothing actually more important than how we're found on that final day. Nothing better than being vindicated for all of our suffering that God was with us and sustained us. This final day, this is it. It's the culmination of our life here. So how are we living this life in light of that day? Our future self, whether we're Christian or not, will tell us to live in faith, believing in Jesus to be found worthy on that final day, to be loving. We don't, have to, don't sit out on loving one another. It's worth it. And to endure the suffering so you can be counted worthy on that final day. This morning, if you're not a Christian, I, I, I may not know you, but I do want what is best for you. I love you enough to want that for you. And would you consider just this morning if this God is real and if this final day is real? You know, it's maybe hard to stomach because that just goes against our culture. 
You know, we, we have countless truths in our culture because truth is found, you know, internally. So it seems like we're in a culture that loves just, justice, but why does it seem like justice is so elusive? A culture that loves love, yet we see more hate than we've ever seen. A culture that wants to come together, yet seems more divided than it ever has been. This is what happens when we judge truth by ourselves and what we determine to be truth. And so my pleading with you to believe in this, I want you to hear is not coming from a condescending position, saying, I know what's right, you, you don't, because this is what I've determined to be true. It, it comes from a source external for me. And I think that's what we all want and we need, a true source of justice and love, the one true God. And I want you to taste and see this God today, today, and certainly before that final day. So I would just encourage you today, just be challenged, challenge yourself. Think about, is this God true? What's on the line if, if I don't believe this? What's on the line if I do believe this? If you have any questions, you can come find me after service, but honestly, you can talk to anybody in this church about this. To my fellow Christians, mm, uh, this can be a scary scene. <laughs> I've talked to a lot of Christians who stay up, have very late nights, fearing that their destiny is eternal punishment, fearing that they're not truly loved. But listen, this passage is not put here to scare believers, but to encourage believers, to endure to that final day. So I just want to ask you, believer, if you're scared of this day, do you believe in God? Do you believe that he's real? Yes? Okay. Do you believe that Jesus has died and taken all of your sins and the penalty of sin so that you were found righteous before God because you believed in him? Yes. Do you mourn when you sin? Maybe not as much as you feel like, but do you mourn when you sin and you take it to the Lord and repent? This is good news for you that our God, rich in grace and kind in mercy, when we get to that final day, no matter how long the suffering seems to go, he's going to say to you, welcome home, good and faithful servant. You will be counted worthy on that final day. And this, I think, what's helpful about this passage. I want, like for us who are suffering, whether it be because we're, we're afraid we're not, gonna, we're not saved or maybe just the suffering feels unbearable. I think Paul's calling us on us here to use a faith-filled imagination. A faith-filled imagination to think about that final day when, when Jesus appears, when it fills the skies, when his power is not only seen in this person, but his angels. It's like you can't see through anything, but this final view of Jesus and his angels and at that point, like you, you know, there's no dispute on whether this is the king or not. There's no dispute on whether I believed in this king in this life or not. Every knee will bow. And for Christians, this is such a beautiful and great thought because honestly, the vividness of our moment, the vividness of our suffering can blind us to the glory of that final day. I mean, that's what kind of suffering does, right? It just 
covers your view, and all you can see is, is your pain. You know, this word for affliction here, I found it helpful. It's, it's kind of this word that means tension. So like a string on a bow. Like it's just always in tension. And isn't that such a great illustration for what we feel most of our Christian lives? Tension. And Paul tells the Christians that he will b- bring relief when? Not today, but on that final day. So my fellow sufferers, my fellow tired Christians, I want to tell you some hard news, but very good news. That it feels like your affliction is going to go on forever. There's no promise of it releasing in this life. But it will get released. That day is coming. And so I think Paul here wants us to look forward. You know, when the tension is so strong, look forward to this day that is coming. Your true reality, when the tension of loneliness just feels like it's never going to change, look forward to this day. When you're facing that really frustrating sin and you always feel the tension of it, look, look, look forward to this day. When it feels like you, you just need to do anything to escape the tension of this life, eat whatever you need to eat, watch whatever you want to watch, look forward to this final day. When you have a desire to control everything in your life, because that's the only way you can seem to find some peace, let go a bit and look to this final day. For those of you, your grief is so strong, it just feels like you're crumbling. Look forward to this final day because it is going to be a such sweet reversal on this final day. And all of the vividness of our suffering today will only enrich the vividness of being found worthy that final day when we will glorify Jesus. It's going to be so sweet when that day comes. This is what it is to be found worthy, that we hold on, and in that moment, when Christ returns, we will be able to do nothing but glorify him for calling us, saving us, and bringing us home. So we don't want to put this day in jeopardy. Really, there is no other goal for us in this life but to make it to that day. And so how do we pray for one another? What do we prioritize in this life? With all of this in view, this final day in view, Paul finally gets to his prayer for the church there. Does he pray that their circumstances would lighten, that the tension would release, to be strong enough to fight against the evil itself instead of letting the Lord do that at the final day? Well, let's take a look as we look, as we enter to our final point, God-empowered worthiness. Listen as I read verses 11 through 13. In view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling. By his power, fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified by you and you by him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul could have prayed a lot of things here. But he prays that God would empower their living today and make them worthy of being counted worthy on that final day. 
And it is clear to Paul what is going to get them to this final day. It's not going to be judging the culture around us. He doesn't even speak to culture. Oh, he's concerned about the church. He speaks to the church. He's concerned about their faithfulness. So God prays that he would make them worthy of his calling. And calling is always used in the Bible to speak of God's effectual calling. When he saves someone, illuminates the path of salvation, and changes their desires. Again, we saw that in the second chapter, that God calls them, chooses them before creation, and calls them through the gospel so they may obtain this glory. In essence, he's reminding us that the one who saved us will keep us to the end. The one who saved us will keep us to the end. And in verse 11, Paul prays that God's power would fulfill their every desire to do good and their works to faith. Again, when we were saved, he changed our minds, our desires to want to do what is good and pleasing to the Lord, even if we do it imperfectly. Not only does he change our desires, he empowers us to do that. This is where it's helpful, again, to remember this idea of the ticket. We are always reliant on God for the ticket, start to finish. Yet it is our obedience, our response to this, of walking in faith and dependence of God, that actually adds to the worthiness and the weight on this final day. It's worth it. It's worth it in faith to work for the good of those around us. And you know, some of us might need a little, little nudge here, maybe a big nudge, that laziness can happen within our faith. That's actually what was happening here at this church. In chapter 3, you would see that he gets on them for idleness and laziness. You know, we can understand that. We can say in our culture today, oh, there's a lot happening. I'm busy. Mm, I want to take this trip. I don't feel like serving. Actually, I don't get the good feelings from serving, from loving other people. It just seems to tire me. And here, I just, again, I want you to activate your imaginations of faith again and just say, is there anything worth more than enduring good works of faith in this life to be found worthy in the final life. It may not feel glorious now, but it will be. <laughs> and you're never on your own here. We can't miss this. God empowers all of it. We can never rely on ourselves for this, but actually God's power the whole time. It's the Lord who empowers you. So what would it look like to give yourself to difficult labor for the gospel this year, this week, in faith? What would it look like for you to reach out to someone in this church you've been meaning to, to love and encourage them in faith? What would it look like you, for you to set aside time? Like literally, get out a timer. I don't know, put, a, put a, ca- a calendar meeting on your calendar to pray actively this very thing for the church. That God would strengthen our faith. That God would empower us for all the good works to do for his kingdom. What would it look like to model hard work and, and good work, bringing good to, you, to your workplace this week, to your home? I'm certainly not asking you to serve out of guilt. I'm asking because this is an evidence that God is making you worthy on that final day. And is there anything worth more than that? It's to this final day, the, the picture that Paul turns, again, that our, our faith and works have a purpose. This is in verse 12. That, that the name of our Lord Jesus would be glorified by you. 
What's interesting is here, I think this gives us some, some clarity on, on the texture and quality of our praise that'll happen on that final day. You know, the, the weight of our affliction when we hold on to Christ will only contribute to the weight and meaningfulness of, of glory to Christ on that final day. When all of God's enemies see, oh, these people that we thought were weak, that were suffering, oh, these, these are God's people whom he has saved and called. And there's the proof. They endured in faith. What a rich quality this, of worship this will be when the multitudes show up. Countless people from all of history appear who suffered in this life. Yet in this moment, it's crystal clear that it was worth it. And the Lord brought them to that final day. It will be a scene of those made worthy giving worth to the king. And then maybe surprisingly, or even more rich, is that Jesus will glorify us. It says it there. And you by him. He will vindicate you. <laughs> I mean, I know myself. The Lord's going to vindicate me? Like, I know my shortcomings. <laughs> but the Lord is going to vindicate his faithful who hold on to him in faith to fight against the suffering. You know, those who the depression just doesn't ever seem to lift in this life. Those who the insomnia never leaves them alone. Those whose hateful self-talk plagues them. Whose loneliness is always haunting them. The sin that won't leave us alone. It feels like God's not going to let this go forever, but, but he isn't. The day is coming, and he sees you holding on. However imperfectly and messy that might be, he sees you holding on, and he is holding on to you. So what makes a Christian different in suffering and anxiety and depression? Well, the world will tell you, you just have to go through it. The only way through it is through it. Mm. But the Christian message tells us that, oh yeah, you need to go through it, but you'll be vindicated. That this will not last. And that day will be glorious. So even, yes, suffering saint who feels like your suffering is not going to end. I can't tell you if it will or will not in this life, but I can tell you it's going to be worth it at the very end. Which in beautiful symmetry only glorifies Jesus more, that the multitudes remain faithful in suffering. And so we see this beautiful cycle of praise with God at the center. And just in case at this point in the sermon or this point in the letter, we're starting to put the pressure on our shoulders that we need to do this, that it's all on us, Paul points us right back to grace. He says, this all happens according to the grace of our, Father, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Start to finish, this is God's grace. We all deserve eternal patient, uh, punishment, but for God's grace. We should all probably wither away from our suffering, but for God's grace. And we should all fall short of being found worthy on that final day, but for God's grace. Praise the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. This is good news. We started this morning with a problem and a question. Is our view of what's best for someone always going to be limited to our stage of life or our experience? 
Well, thankfully, it doesn't have to be. Because I think God has given us this word to tell us what's going to happen. To give us eyes to understand what our future self would want to tell us now. And then secondly, how does this affect how we pray for one another? Well, I hope just very practically, uh, you would take this passage and just pray for our church. Um, but this also teaches us that it's our, we may not know what's best for the, a person in that particular circumstance in relation to the circumstance, but we do know what's best in relation to faith, love, and endurance. So we actually get some clarity on what we ought to be praying for one another. And this all pushes us to a life that we live today by God's power, but we live like, no, nothing is better than being found worthy on that final day. So church family, we, we, we need each other for this. Please, please don't be a Lone Ranger Christian. Please don't leave us alone or let us leave you alone. Let's encourage one another in faith and love. And we certainly need to be praying for each other. And these are the kinds of things that I would like you praying for me. You know, uh, the final note I'll just make as we wrap the sermon up is just remembering this was a young church. We've got a lot of young believers here. Praise the Lord, we're going to bring one into our church here in just a moment. Someone that has been bought by, by the blood of Jesus will proclaim that she is a faithful follower of Jesus. But family, we've got to come around each other. We need to help her, and she needs to help us. Because I'm telling you that your future self, no, no, better yet, that, that, I, that I'm telling you, no, well, even better yet, that the true judge of all the earth is telling you it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it to hold on in faith. Why don't you take a moment right now to just reflect in your own heart about what you think is maybe best for your own life, for those around you, and how we can encourage one another in faith, love, and endurance. And I'll pray in a moment. our righteous judge, we thank you that we can come to you and pray to you, our Father, that you have brought us into your family through the blood of Jesus, through the work of your Spirit. Now, Lord, we ask that you would make us worthy of the calling you have put on our life, that, Lord, you would strengthen our faith and empower all of our good desire to do good work and good deeds. And help us to keep all of the good work we want to do attached to faith because, Lord, we need you for every step of this. And it gives me so much joy to need you because I know you will complete the work you began. So, Lord, fill our minds and our desire with the hope and the assurance and the glory of your return. Lord, let that affect how we live today. And Lord, let, let that affect the way we praise you and glorify you today, knowing what it will look like on the final day. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.